0: Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of vision and preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ.
1: Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's Gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect.
2: Good morning, church. I'm gonna be reading our scripture for the sermon today that Pastor Mason will be preaching from, whether it be from Mark 1, verse 40, through chapter two and 12. It says this in verse 40, And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved by pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing nothing to anyone, But go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing that Moses commanded for proof of them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together. So that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paraplegic carried by four men. And when they could not near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lit down the bed on which the paraplegic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paraplegic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.' Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paraplegic? Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise, take your bed, and walk? But, they, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paraplegic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. So that they were all amazed and glorified, God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the word that's being brought for us today. I pray that you bless Mason and help him to teach us with the authority that Jesus Christ is shown in the scripture today. I pray that we have ears and a heart to hear and to receive the scriptures that we're reading so we can take this out into our community so we can act in the same faith as these young men did in the scripture, Lord. I pray that you help us today and bless the offering that it goes towards your kingdom and helping our community here in Charleston so we can do greater works outside of this building And the new additions to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Amen. Uh, Res kids, you guys are, yeah, I'm sneaking up on you. Res kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, Ushers, you can go ahead and come forward for the offering. Welcome. Uh, We had uh, a big morning. This morning we had a vote on the budget. So our members got together and voted on the budget, and uh, in a hotly contested debate, it passed. It was actually unanimous. It wasn't highly contested at all. So uh, we have a, an operating budget for 2018 now. Uh, again, it was delayed because of the Capitol Theater uh, decision. Secondly, if you'll see in the foyer, uh, there, is a, a couple, there are a couple of boxes that are drop off supply locations for a Martin Luther King Jr. Day project that some AmeriCorps uh, folks in our town are doing. And so I got an email uh, earlier in the week if we could be a drop off location. So if you have any, there's um, some feedback over that way. If you have any uh, sort of gloves, lightly used sort of hats, jackets, um, warm clothing, anything like that that you'd like to drop off, uh, come by the center anytime this week uh, and someone should be here and we can, we can make sure that that gets in the box. So uh, unfortunately, this is the only Sunday it'll be here. We didn't have a chance to announce it. So in your small group, missional community discipleship groups this week, make sure you uh, collect those things and uh, get them to me or get them to someone who's here throughout the week, or just bring them in, contact me, and let's see if we can uh, provide them with some good stuff. So I think that's all I had by way of announcements. Uh, You know, many of you know I got married this year um, in August. On August 12th, uh, Holly made the best decision of her life and um, you know much has changed in my life since I got married. For the first time as a grown man, I don't live with Derek Vance. Uh, We lived together for a while and then uh, I had at one point, I'll never forget this, at one point we had a person on the couch, a person in my study, a person in my two upstairs bedrooms, and then, then me. So there were five people living at 505. That's in the glory days. And a couple of dogs, uh, R.I.P. Gus. And so we, we had a big old time. And much has changed in my house, that now that it's not, a, a, as my neighbors called it, a Christian frat house. Um, now that it's not that, now that it's a single family home, as it was intended to be, uh, a lot has changed. But one thing has not changed. Uh, shark tank is still on the TV all the time I feel like whenever all the roommates like every night we just pretty much like we went off to work and did what we did and then we came home and then like at some point in the evening we were all sitting around watching shark tank like I don't know how it was always on CNBC uh, It still is always on CNBC and so every night you could bank on the fact that (laughs) We're going to be sitting there watching Shark Tank like, I wouldn't have invested that. Like, That's a bad idea. I'd be all over that one, you know. And so uh, I don't know why, but for some reason Holly and I still watch a, an awful lot of Shark Tank. Uh, and so I don't know if you've seen the show, but it, the idea is that an entrepreneur or a team of entrepreneurs uh, go to uh, a team of investors, so four millionaires and one billionaire who's the best. That's Mark Cuban. He's awesome. And so uh, they go to him and they, they, they go to these folks and they pitch their business idea and the idea is that they want someone to invest in their company. So they're willing to part ways with some portion of their company so that they can get this investors money and their partnership and their relationship in the business. So the perfect investor, the perfect shark is someone who is two things, right? The perfect investor on Shark Tank is someone who is both willing and able to take on the company that you're pitching to them. The perfect investor is willing and able. It's one thing to just be willing, like yeah I'll give you, I'd give you a billion dollars for that. If I had a nickel for every time someone told me that if they had a million dollars they would give to our our church, we'd have a million dollars worth of nickels. Uh, and so it's one thing to be willing. Many of us are willing, but it's quite another to be able. You know, a God who is willing to save us is great, right? A God who's willing to save us is great. If he's all love and he's so tenderhearted and compassionate and kind, he's so willing to save us, that's awesome. But it doesn't really matter Maybe he's not able to save us. And likewise, the God who's able to save us, right, he's strong, he's Powerful, he's mighty. The nations bow before him. That's great and all. Like it's awesome that he's able to save us. But if he's not willing to save us, if he doesn't love us enough to save us, then it does not matter. We'll see this morning in our text in Mark chapter one verse forty through chapter two verse twelve that we serve a God who's really two things. He's both willing and able to save us. Jesus isn't necessarily here to fund our business, but to bring healing and wholeness into the lives of broken people. We'll see broad themes this morning of compassion and authority in our text. One way that we can think about the work of Jesus the reformers did and many before them is through the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And this morning we'll see Jesus as the priest who brings complete healing. He is the lamb by which healing comes. We'll see Jesus as the prophet, the one who rightly interprets the word of God, perfectly revealing the heart of the Father. And we'll see that Jesus is king. He's God. He has the ability to work outside the confines of natural law and to bring healing to a degenerative body. But even more importantly, he has the authority to forgive sin. I want you to know that Jesus has the authority and the desire to bring healing to you this morning as you are. When you see Jesus in the text this morning interacting with a leper and a paralytic, understand that this Jesus is alive and by His Spirit, He is working to bring sinners to repentance. That this Jesus is the one who knows you, He loves you, and He's created you for good works that He has prepared beforehand. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but it's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The title of today's sermon is Simply Willing and Able. Look with me in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. I'm going to read the first uh, part of the text, the first pericope, a little passage, and then I'll read the second. In the first, you're going to see the theme of compassion most vividly. And in the second, most vividly, you're going to see the theme of authority. Though you can't separate the two, as compassion and authority are evident But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to, here, coming to him from every quarter. Look with me in verse 40. Verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. This leper doesn't know much about Jesus, but he knows something about Jesus. Right? He knows that If you will, you can make me clean. Meaning, he has the ability if he has the desire. He is able if he's willing, as we would say this morning. As you may guess, a leper would be bad news in the first century. A leper is someone who is ceremonially ceremonially unclean. Financially, socially, and religiously, a leper is quite simply an outcast. And touching a leper would make one unclean. The leper, though, knows that Jesus is somehow different. He doesn't know many details. He doesn't have the sort of resources that we have today. But he knows that Jesus can bring real healing, and what he's asking for is real healing. The leper doesn't want to be ceremonially clean. He doesn't want to be pronounced clean. He doesn't want to be like sort of just clean as like an honorary doctorate degree or something like that. He wants to actually be clean. We can only presume this guy, this poor leper, has wanted healing for the entirety of the time he's had the disease. And We can also only presume that his willingness to come to Jesus like this implies that he's sought out other remedies. He's sought out other answers. We'll touch in just a moment on a sort of a religious pathway that this leper could have taken to pursue cleansing. But Jesus hears this. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. This isn't a main point, but it's what I call a preaching point when I'm looking at these texts. A preaching point is simple. This guy doesn't have much faith in Jesus, but he's acting on what faith he does have. If you will, you can make me clean. It's like that prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This morning, as you are encountering the text, don't bring superficiality to Christ. Bring to Christ what little faith you may have. It's better to have a little faith in the right thing than a lot of faith in the wrong thing. See, I could have a little bit of faith in a stick to keep me afloat in the uh, nice, warm Kanawha River out there. But it doesn't matter how much faith I have in that stick, it's not going to keep me afloat because it's just a stick. But I can have just a little bit of faith... On a boat, right? But if that little bit of faith is placed in the boat, then I'm going to be okay. Because I might not have a whole lot of faith, but it's located in the right place. And likewise, this leper comes. listen, I don't know. I just know if you can, if you will, you can. And I think we approach Jesus in the same way this morning. Like, we know he can, and we know that he will. And we approach him with faith this morning. Jesus then is, the text says, moved with pity, Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Being moved with pity, we see that Jesus is compassionate. He is willing to cleanse this man. And I think it's so significant that the leper is an outcast. Why? Because his touch would make people unclean. This leper had to be sent out. And I think there's a sort of um, you know, humanitarian side of our brains when we read texts like this and we we hear about that and we're like man that's kind of unjust that this leper would just be outcast and, and in many ways it, it it is sad it's unfair but in other ways you got I think they don't have modern hospitals right they don't have modern medicine so this disease would spread rapidly if they were just among the sort of natural population. So I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm saying that there is a public health reason that these lepers aren't in sort of day-to-day contact with everybody else. And so there's a legitimate fear, not just a spiritual or not just even ceremonial fear, but there is a real fear that if this guy touches me, then I can, I can be ill and it can it can spread to me as well. And I think it's so significant and so profound that the touch everyone was avoiding, Jesus initiated. And instead of being made unclean, Jesus makes him clean. Jesus is moved with pity. He's moved with compassion. And the very touch that so many just thought, oh, it would make me unclean, it would make me unclean, it would make me unclean, Jesus comes into the equation and he makes him clean. Jesus changes the world around him. Immediately, in typical Mark and fashion in verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. We noted last week a lot about the book of Mark. We're in a series right now going through the whole book of Mark. And we noted, uh, if you go back and listen on our website to last week's sermon, a whole lot more about sort of the structure of Mark and the flow of Mark, and Mark is quick, Mark is punchy, Mark moves fast, and he uses words like immediately and things like that quite often. So, immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now, verse 43, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, verse 44, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, verse, verses 43 and 44 introduce something very significant to the text. Jesus is telling This healed man to do two things. The first thing he's telling him to do is what? Shut up. Like, like, keep quiet. Like, don't tell anybody about what has happened. That's the first thing. And we'll see in just a moment just how uh, disobedient this cat was. So first thing he tells him is to keep quiet. The second thing Jesus tells him to do, go show yourself to the priests and go through the ceremonial cleansing that Moses prescribed Go through the ceremonial cleansing that Moses prescribed. In my study this week, this sent me down a rabbit hole in Leviticus that I spent a whole lot of time in. Now, I think Jesus says this for two reasons. Jesus tells him to go to the priest, go to the temple, and make the sort of arrangements that Moses had commanded, and he would be ceremonially declared clean and allowed to reenter society through those pathways. But I think Jesus does this for two reasons. One, Jesus respects the law. Jesus is an obedient son to the Father. He doesn't see the law as something bad. He sees it as something good and holy and helpful. And so the pathway that Jesus has isn't one that comes in like some preachers present him as this uh, reckless renegade that says, away with anything else that's ever come before me. But Jesus understands himself in the lineage of the Old Testament. And so he says, I want you to go through the pathways that Moses has prescribed. Uh, Woo! Man, there's a buzz about to knock me out. I don't know what that is. Anyone else hear that? Oh, it's probably just me. I get that a lot in my head. Um, man, uh, something's going on. I might have to preach from the floor. I might, something happened. I don't know what happened. It might, it's probably me and, you know, demons and things like that. <laughs> um, keep quiet. Go show yourself to the priest and go through the ceremonial cleansing that Moses prescribed. Again, one, so that he can be declared clean, sort of the way that is prescribed in Leviticus. And two, witnesses to be born to the priest that Jesus has healed him. I think that's most important. Let me zone in there for a second. First, again, keeping with the Old Testament, this is the pathway I want you to go through to be, you know, proclaimed clean. Secondly, and most significantly, this guy is healed from leprosy, realized, right? And he's going to go to the temple. He's going to go to the priest. He's going to say, hey, I've been healed from my leprosy. I need to make a sacrifice for cleansing. Can we get that ball rolling? And I just, I, I put myself in the position of the priest right here. Because you know there are like certain protocols, maybe at work, that you know they're there, but you never have to use. Like I'm sure all of our brothers and sisters in Hawaii yesterday were looking for their protocols on what happens when a nuclear missile is coming their way, and it's one of those protocols like, I'm never going to have to actually use this. And I think the priest thinks something similarly. So in Leviticus 13, there's sort of this long process for what happens when you declare someone a leper and then unclean. And thankfully, it's a hard process. It's a rigorous process. Basically, the priest goes and he inspects the person, and if he thinks he has leprosy, they quarantine him, but not away from everybody, like sort of just in a room or whatever, for seven days. And then if it grows, if it gets worse, they say, okay, I think you do have it. And if they do have it, then there's a process by which they um, they send them out. And so, but if, you know, in those seven days it doesn't get worse, then they, they leave them there. So there's a process in Leviticus by which you pronounce if someone is, has leprosy or not. And then after that process, there's a process by which if someone has leprosy and is healed, by which they can be rehabilitated and sort of reinstituted into society. And so I think the priests all know their Old Testament very well. They all have, just like all of us, have Leviticus memorized, right? And so um, they, they, I can only imagine when the priest comes to them, or the, the leper comes to the priest and says, hey guys, I've been healed from leprosy. Let's go ahead and start the protocol. The priest would be like, what? <laughs> Healed from leprosy, like that never happens. And so by coming and and being this testimony that he's been healed, what is happening is Jesus is communicating with these religious leaders saying, listen, he's been healed and I healed him. Witnesses to be born to the priest that Jesus has healed him. This guy has really been healed. He's encountered real power. So when they profess that this guy's been healed, They say, yes, we affirm that you've been healed. Here's the sacrifice for your reinstatement in the society. What are they also professing? They're also professing that the power that healed him was efficacious, meaning that when they say you've been healed, they're validating that Jesus has healed him. Offer for your cleansing what Moses has commanded. I want to think about that just for a moment. Uh, There's the procedure, as I said in Leviticus 14. I'm not going to go through it too much. Just two minutes or so here. The priest will go out. To the leper that's been healed, supposedly, and make sure that his disease is gone. He will then call for two birds cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And then with these supplies, he's gonna begin a ceremony. One bird's gonna be killed over fresh water, the other bird's gonna be dipped in uh, the blood of the one that died, and the fresh water with the hyssop, with the cedar wood, with the yarn. He's gonna sprinkle that dead bird then seven times over the leper, then he's gonna wash his clothes, and he's gonna cut all of his hair off of his head from his uh, face and his hair and all those things. And then he can come like towards the edge of the camp, but there's more procedure that has to happen. And then at the very end of the procedure, after sacrifices, after this, after that, a lamb is killed. Leviticus 14, 19 says, The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, check it out, the priest will make atonement for him, and he will be clean. The healing process for a leper would culminate with a lamb being killed as a sin offering and a guilt offering with a priest making atonement, and only then was the leper back in the land of the living. The healing process for this leper did not end with a lamb. The healing process for this leper began with a lamb. This leper, who was not to go and run his mouth, was to go to the priest. He was to enter into this process as God had commanded him to do. Because Jesus has a message for the religious rulers of the day. He is here, the kingdom has come, and he can do what the law cannot do. Empty ceremonies have given way to a living God. Empty ceremonies have given way to a living God. And I ask you about your relationship with God, I ask you about your experience with Christianity. Is it an empty ritual? Is it just something you do or something you think you should do? Or is there sort of um, a power to it? Is there a, a life to it? Is it dead religion? Or is it real life in God? Have you experienced God? Has Jesus truly transformed your life? Now, I want us to just think for a moment about the gospel picture that would have been on display if this guy had done what Jesus commanded him to do. Jesus says, okay, listen, you've been healed. I don't want you to tell anybody. I want you to go straight to the priest. I want you to start this process to be reinstated. And I want this priest to see that you've been healed. And I want to, him to understand that a new day has dawned. But the guy goes and he decides he's going to share with everybody. And in fact, that hampers Jesus' mission. The text says in verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus could have, would have, accomplished far more with this guy's obedience than his effort. Jesus' church has better ideas than we do. It's hard for him to accomplish things without fanfare, but just in case we think his mission could possibly be thwarted by somebody else. Chapter 2 begins in verse 1, and look with me in the second portion of the sermon. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could get, not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they, lay, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, picking up from the last pericope that we were in, we see that the crowds have persisted. That, that, that this house is absolutely packed out of people listening to Jesus preach and teach. But there's a group of guys who, much like this leper, knew that if they... If Jesus would heal, he could heal. And so they bring their paralytic friend, their paralyzed friend, which um, had obviously no cure then and in many ways no, no cure today. They, they bring him to Jesus, but they find that there is a problem. They can't get to the door. The crowds are so thick. And so they look for a better way to get to him. And they remove the roof to the building. Um, there is sort of a, a story that comes to mind when I think of this passage. One of our deacons, uh, Sam Crago Uh, has a story, I'm not going to tell it this morning, uh, about when he was in high school. He sort of decided to play a prank in one of his classes as the godly kid that he was. And uh, he goes to the bathroom and he he climbs up into the ceiling and he's going to make a guest appearance in his Spanish class through the roof, through the ceiling. And so he goes up to the bathroom, you know, and he climbs up into the drop ceiling and he army crawling through there and then uh, something goes disastrously wrong at the end of the story, and he falls through and almost, you know, knocks the kid out with the ceiling tile and things. So ask Sam about that story. So I, unfortunately, because of Sam, I can't read this text without picturing Sam just falling through the ceiling uh, as well. But I think there's a, a sort of vivid picture of these guys, uh, sort of like Sam, just coming crashing in through the ceiling and disturbing the peace, uh, the relative peace of the situation. And so uh, these guys know that Jesus can heal him, so they bring their friend, they remove the roof, here to get them to him here's another preaching point somewhat secondary that I would say uh, these guys are removing anything that kept them from Jesus these guys are removing anything that kept them from Jesus and likewise I challenge you in your walk with Christ be ready to remove anything that keeps you from your walk with Christ now, this weekend uh, Danny Aiken, the president of, of my seminary uh, was preaching at the youth evangelism conference here in town and he preached on uh, the very beginning of Hebrews 12, where it's, Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame to sit down at the right hand uh, of the Father. Consider him who endures such opposition from sinful men that we may not grow weary and lose heart. So, it's, uh, consider him who endures such, o- such opposition from sinful men that we may not grow weary and lose heart. And it says, let us lay aside everything that can slow us down. Let us, every, let us lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run the race with perseverance. Let's run the race with endurance. And so the message of the passage that that Dr. Aiken was preaching was, keep your eyes on Jesus, understand how much he loves you, understand what he's done for you, and now anything that is keeping you from chasing after him, anything that is holding you back, anything that's weighing you down, get rid of that. When a marathon runner runs a race, he doesn't run with all kinds of clothes on, right? They wear the bare minimum of clothes that they can run because they want as little resistance as possible while they're running the race. And I think that metaphor holds true in Hebrews, right? To, to, To lay aside everything that's holding on to you, lay aside everything that's holding you back, lay aside everything that's that's slowing you down so that you can run the race with perseverance. And I think there's an affinity with the text that we see this morning, because there is seemingly no more room around Jesus. And I want you to think this morning that perhaps you think there's no more room around Jesus for you, that surely Christ doesn't love you, surely Christ hasn't taken care of your sins, surely Christ doesn't have a plan and purpose for your life. I want to encourage you that just like these guys who are searching for a way, there's always more room at the feet of Jesus. And just like these guys who are tearing away at the roof to get to Jesus so they could bring their friend to him, like there's always a way to him. My challenge is for us is to remove everything in our lives that's keeping us from coming to Jesus and receiving him and his healing in our lives. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up the bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. In verse 5, a relationship is beginning to form between really three things that the gospel writer is going to continue to flesh out, and then Paul in his letters is really going to flesh out. And that's the relationship between faith, healing, and sin. Between faith, healing, and sin. So Jesus... Uh, says to him, what? Son, your sins are forgiven. A precarious thing to say to someone who's just paralyzed and needs to be healed of that. He, he forgives him of his sins. And the listening crowd is, is, is perplexed, to put it nicely. And the scribes, the religious teachers, the people who understood uh, the scriptures a little bit more, were more than perplexed. They were a little bit angry. And, and they said, this is blasphemy, right? Like, Who can forgive sins? God alone. Like, I can't forgive sins. You can't forgive sins. Nobody can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So if this guy is forgiving this guy's sins, then he's doing something that only God can do. He's claiming authority that's his. If Jesus is just a teacher, then he's not a very good one. <laughs> because he should know that he can't do that if he's just a teacher. Now, the rest of the passage that I just read, I think, is a little bit wordy and a, a little bit complicated. And so um, I, I refer to Eugene Peterson as some of the commentary on texts like this, and I think he, he nails what Mark is trying to say. Listen to this brief paraphrase of just a couple of the verses that I just read. Jesus knew right away what they were thinking, and he said, Why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler, to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, get up, take your stretcher, and start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the Son of Man and authorized to do either or both, he looks now at the paraplegic, get up. Pick up your stretcher and go home. And the man did it. He got up, grabbed his stretcher, and walked out with everyone there watching him. They rubbed their eyes, incredulous, and then praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. He's just said, right, that his sins are forgiven. And now he tells the guy to get up and walk. His invisible authority that they couldn't immediately verify, right? They can't immediately verify if this guy's sins are forgiven or not. They have no way to really know that. They can say, you know, I can say your sins are forgiven, and there's no nothing that happens. There's no real transaction in my saying that. But Jesus says your sins are forgiven, and then so that you may know that he has the power to forgive sins, oh, by the way, rise up and walk. And just like that, the impossible happens, and he rises up and walks. His invisible authority is verified by this visible sign of power. So Jesus then has a message for the scribes, for the paralytic, and for everyone watching, that Jesus is not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another healing. He's not just another healer either, right? That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus has unique, profound, and real authority over the demonic realm. That Jesus can bring healing and brokenness, and that Jesus can cause this man to walk. But more intrinsically, Jesus can forgive this man's sins. The healing of this paralytic man was more than just a display of mercy. This radical healing of this man's entire person was a sign that the kingdom of God had drawn near. Christ has drawn near. My challenge for us is that you would come to him today. Worship team, if you guys would go ahead and approach Uh, the Lord's table, and then we will all follow you in just a moment. Mark 1 was relatively rosy and cheery. Uh, Mark 2 thus far has been relatively rosy and cheery as we move along the narrative. But we see at the end of, or throughout this beginning part of chapter 2, the seeds of conflict have been sown. Right? When they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There are questions that are beginning to percolate, questions that are beginning to develop, come to the surface, about who this person is. The religious leaders here in the beginning of chapter 2 begin to um, ask questions that are going to lead to full-blown fights not very far from now. The title of this message has been Willing and Able, and I want you to understand that Jesus was willing and able. Jesus is willing and able. Jesus was willing to take up his cross. Jesus was willing to come to earth, wrap himself in flesh, knowing he came on a mission that wasn't going to be all that glorious. Dr. Aiken told another story that's just fresh in my head. I've heard him preach a couple times in the last few months, and he's said the same story, so I'm going to call him on his need to expand his stories. But with a story this good, I understand why. He talks about when he took over at Southeastern as the president of the seminary. We have a lot of uh, missionaries who come through our seminary. Uh, that uh, One of the students, his parents were missionaries in Iraq, and uh, they were gunned down at a stoplight in Baghdad. And um, and Dr. Aiken had just taken over and uh, was just burdened for his family. And so he reaches out to the the student and just says, man, I'm praying for you. I I love you. I'm here uh, for you. And uh, the student shared a story with Dr. Aiken that's impacted him by extension, many who have have heard the story. Um, He said, "I, I miss my parents dearly. And not a few tears have been shed over these last several days. And, um, I just want to tell you one story, Dr. Akin. Um, an acquaintance of mine, it's an atheist guy, right? So he doesn't believe that there a God at all. Uh, and he sent me his condolences, which was great, which was super kind. And uh, I was reading the email and I really appreciated it. And I don't know if he was meaning to be offensive, but at the very end of the email, um, he said, isn't it a shame that your parents died for nothing. Isn't it a shame that your parents died for nothing? And he said, I wrote him back, and I just said, you know, thank you for the email. Thank you for your condolences. Um, I, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate that, but I just want to, you know, speak into one thing that you said. Uh, you mentioned that my parents died for nothing, um, but I want you to know they didn't die for nothing. And I want you to know as well that If my parents knew, before they went to Baghdad, that the result of their obedience to Christ would be getting gunned down in a stoplight, guess what, they would have gone anyway. And I think about me and and you, if I knew that obedience to Christ would cost me my life, would would I still do it? And it leads me to worship Jesus more, because he knew, what coming to earth would cost. He knew that a crown awaited him, but the crown that awaited him was a crown of thorns. He knew that he was walking towards a coronation, but the coronation before him was nothing like the Caesars. The coronation before him was death outside the city gates on a cross in shame. He knew what awaited him, and he came. Jesus was willing to take the cross, but more than just willing, Jesus was able to take the cross. Jesus loves you more than anyone's loved you. Jesus loves you so much that he died in your place, but Jesus' death is powerful because Jesus was sinless. Jesus never made a mistake. Jesus never had one millisecond of a bad attitude. Jesus never did the wrong thing when he should have done the right thing. He was never somewhere when he should have been here. He was never doing this when he should have been doing that. Jesus was always obedient to the Father. And he lived a perfect life. He was stainless. He was spotless. And unlike all of us, he was completely innocent. Completely perfect. A lamb without spot nor blemish. And because of that, He was able to be our substitute. He was able to die. And on him, all the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin was poured, so that the scars he received may lead us to receive scars of mercy and grace. Jesus was willing to die in your place. Jesus was able to die in your place. And this morning, Jesus is willing to lead your life. Jesus is able to lead your life. Because of his sacrifice for you, God's posture towards you is one of grace, mercy, and favor. As we go to the table in just a moment and partake of the body of Christ that's been broken for us, the blood of Christ which has been shed for us, we think about Christ's willingness and his ability to be our savior. And as you approach the table in a few moments, I want you to think about his willingness and his ability to be your Lord. Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's able? Some of you trust that he's able. Of course he's able. He's Jesus, right? He's the son of God. He's the king of kings. Of course he's able, but I don't think he's willing. Is he willing to love someone like me? Who's messed up like I have? who's sinned the way I've sinned, who's done the things I've done, who's lied the way I've lied? who's cheated the way I've cheated? Is he willing to love me? I don't want to steal the next few sermons thunder, but the answer is a thunderous yes. He's willing and he's able to love someone just as broken and just as messed up as me. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are willing and able. We see a leper in our text this morning who had an encounter with the risen lamb, and that encounter purified him. That encounter made him whole. That encounter did what a religious ritual could never, ever, ever do. Then we saw a paralytic, a man who couldn't walk, A man who was a perfect picture of an outsider. There was no way to get in the room. Everything looked full. He couldn't get there, but his friends got him there. His friends got him to you. We saw that you were able to heal him. But not only were you able to heal his paralysis, You were able to heal a deeper problem that perhaps he didn't even know he had so deeply. You were able to heal heal his sin problem. And you have come with the authority to grant forgiveness of sins. And there is forgiveness of sins in no other name under heaven save the name of Jesus. Jesus, we praise you for being willing to go to the cross for us, for loving us when we didn't love ourselves, when we didn't love you, when we didn't know you. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for being able to satisfy the wrath of God. We praise your purity. We praise your holiness and your goodness and your power. Lord, as we pray and as we uh, approach the table, if there are um, any here who don't know you, that today would be the day that they would say, I want to follow you. I believe now that you are both willing and able to save me. I believe that you're willing and able to lead me. You're willing and able to guide me through all life has. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord's Supper was established by Christ. The Lord's Supper is established for Christians. If you're a guest this morning, you're not a Christian, we're really, really glad that you're here. Uh, But we ask that out of respect to Christ and Christian doctrine that you would just observe at the table to partake of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Over the next few moments, the band's just going to play some music like this. And you are able to approach the table. There's one here and and one here. So uh, I'll be back in a moment to close us out in song. You may now approach the table.